0: on Local Now
1: Channel 525. Welcome back. Happy Monday, August 7th, 2023. I am Seth Liebsen. It's good to have David to uh, David to my west, David Dahl, my producer, and uh, Bill to my north for all the other cardinal points in the audience. The number is 602 960 602-5080-960. A lot to do today. We've talked. A about elites here before, the crossroads and glide path, progressives and progressivism convert to elite leadership. Effectively, it starts with a Marxist worldview of policy and economics and flows upward into unelected bureaucracy, though sometimes elected, that becomes a managerial class lording over the population, their presumptive and presumptuous expertise and nanny statism. Most pronouncedly, you see it in education, you see it in the corporate media, you see it in public health, and you see it in energy and the economy. It's a conceit and presumption that tells you how and what to think, and that if you break from the statist or elite orthodoxy, you are of the unwashed, the dumb, those needing their consciousnesses raised. In sum and substance, it's the view... That your leadership is smarter than you, not you smarter than your leadership. It's the view that it is actually better to be governed by the first 2,000 names of the Harvard faculty than the first 2,000 names in the Boston telephone directory and William F. Buckley's phraseology in reverse. It's the view that Anthony Fauci knows more than you and I and our common sense, even as common sense shows his various changes of minds. We are to leap through as he changes them. Even as common sense shows his admissions to getting things wrong and sometimes lying about it. Even as common sense shows an obdurate sense of self-worth so strong it must actually censor and suppress alternative points of view. I had cause to bring this up a bit last week in relation to a recent essay by David Brooks in the New York Times postulating the question from his elite class, quote, what if we are the bad guys? More on that in a moment. Just a little more background uh, Professor Brad Wilson, author of more books on progressivism than anyone I've ever heard of, defines the movement this way: "Quote the progressive idea, simply put, is that the principled American constitutionalism of fixed natural rights and limited and dispersed powers must be overturned and replaced by an organic, evolutionary model of the constitution that facilitates the authority of experts dedicated to the expansion of the public sphere and political control, especially." At the national level. This all comes with major applications, one of them being that some individuals stand outside the democratic process, an elite class possessed of intelligence as a method who provide the messianic leadership needed to move the process smoothly along. Close quote. Government by credential and expertise, messianism by an elite query as to whether that is better than governance by race or gender, I suppose that would depend on if you are Clarence Thomas or Ketanji Brown-Jackson, the first not qualified for public service according to elites, the second given a mandate by them to do so, the first because he didn't take race seriously enough, the second because she does, though she is evidently confused on gender and as to what a woman is. What is all this expertise worth, and what does it cost us? It turns out it's worth revealing ignorance and dangerousness, because the ignorant have outsized power and the power to impress and propagandize, to create, spread, and expand fear and paranoia, to cause problems in order to cause solutions, the invention of problems in order to provide a solution. C.S. Lewis isn't taught anymore, just as Lincoln and Frederick Douglass and Aristotle and Orwell aren't taught anymore. But just because they are from ages past does not mean we live more enlightened for having mothballed their works. C.S. Lewis put it this way, My contention is that good men, not bad men, consistently acting upon the contentions of their own self-righteousness would act as cruelly and unjustly as the greatest tyrant's. They might, in some respects, act even worse. Of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It may be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated. But those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. They may be more likely to go to heaven, yet at the same time likelier to make a hell of earth. Their very kindness stings with intolerable insult. To be cured against one's will and cured of states, which we may not regard as disease, is to be put on a level with those who have not yet reached the age of reason, or those who never will, to be classified with infants, imbeciles, and domestic animals. Close quote. Well, you give up on natural rights, truth, reason, and common sense, and that is what you get progressivism. The story of every tyranny will show be it Stalinist, Hitler, Mao, Castro, Pol Potter, so many others we thought we buried in history's dustbin they all began and justified themselves upon the abnegation of natural rights and common sense. And they all end treating humans as animals and themselves as gods. This is the price for putting massively important decisions in the hands of people who pay no price for being wrong. I'll take Natural right and Lewis over their progressive and preternatural wrong every time, and I will refuse to grant them any credibility, so too should you. Steve Hayward writes on the aforementioned David Brooks piece that people are still talking about the column, what if we're the bad guys here, and the bad guys here are not the deplorables that Times readers and other enlightened people blame for blocking all desirable progress, but the Times readership itself. Brooks doesn't put it that directly, Hayward writes, but that's the clear subtext. Recall what Brooks wrote. Quote, I ask my friends to try on a vantage point in which we anti-Trumpers are not the eternal good guys. In fact, we're the bad guys. He goes on, when I began my journalism career in Chicago in the 1980s, there were still some old, crusty, working-class guys around the newsroom. Now we're not only a college-dominated profession, we're an elite college-dominated profession. Only eight-tenths of a percent of college students graduate from the super-elite 12 colleges, the Ivy Leagues plus Stanford, MIT, Duke, and Chicago. A 2018 study found that Over half of the staff writers at the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal attended one of the 29 most elite universities in the nation. Michael Lind observes that the upper middle class job market looks like a candelabrum. Those who manage to squeeze through the stem of a few prestigious colleges and universities in their youth can then branch out to fill leadership positions in almost every vocation. Elite graduates monopolize the best jobs and at the same time invent new technologies that privilege the super-skilled workers, making the best jobs better and all other jobs worse. Armed with all kinds of economic, cultural, and political power, we support policies that help ourselves, Brooks is writing of his class. Free trade makes the products we buy cheaper, and our jobs are unlikely to be moved to China. Open immigration makes our service staff cheaper, but new, less-educated immigrants aren't likely to put downward pressure on our wages. Like all elites, we use language and mores as tools to recognize one another and exclude others. Words like problematic, cisgender, Latinx, and intersectional are sure signs that you've got cultural capital coming out of your ears. Meanwhile, members of the less educated classes have to walk on eggshells because they never know when we've changed the usage rules so that something that was sayable five years ago now can get you fired. We also change the moral norms in ways that suit ourselves, never mind the cost to others. For example, there used to be a norm that discouraged people from having children outside marriage, but that got washed away during our period of cultural dominance as we eroded norms that seemed judgmental or that might inhibit individual freedom. There's a lot more worth taking in from this article, but here's the key paragraph from Brooks. Quote, does this mean that I think the people in my class are vicious and evil? No. Most of us are earnest, kind, and public-spirited, but we take for granted and benefit from systems that have become oppressive. Elite institutions have become so politically progressive in part because the people in them want to feel good about themselves as they take part in systems that exclude and reject." Close quote. Now, as Hayward points out, here David proves unable to break from his class. The people in his class are vicious and evil, full stop. One might ask how the systems got built, the oppressive systems got built, that he laments if it weren't for that evil and that viciousness. Hayward continues, We can see already a critical mass of elitists who will censor and even enforce lockdowns by force if the law didn't stand in their way even a little bit. Elite institutions are a large part of the cause of this. They deserve to be destroyed right down to their foundations. The inherent presumption of progressivism is that their expertise based on infallible science can guide us to a better future. But as Michael Oakeshott warned, the conjunction of dreaming and ruling generates tyranny. Good luck getting the Harvard faculty or the New York Times editorial page to ponder this problem for a nanosecond. Until that presumption is overturned, nothing will meaningfully change. Does Harvard realize that a majority of the nation would celebrate... If the entire campus burnt to the ground? Brooks asks this at the end of his column. He says, we can condemn the Trumpian populists until the cow comes. cows come home. But the real question is, when will we stop behaving in ways that make Trumpism inevitable? And I think that is the question. If you want to know why there is a populist or pugilist ethos in the GOP today, it's because that's what they've made populism because of too much elitism and pugilism by too much denunciation and censorship and censoriousness. Hayward had a better thought, perhaps. He wrote, here's a serious question for David Brooks. Why don't you quit your job at the Times editorial page? It's not doing anyone any good anyway. Move back to Chicago and report on the day-to-day crime beat for a Chicago newspaper where such reporting would do good. Great question. Crime, after all, matters, and is another example of elites paving the ruin of society. We're surfeited quite enough with intellectual posturing and self-importance, I think. I'm Seth, 602-5080-960. Be right back. Welcome back to The Seth Leibson Show, 602 5080 6 0. Uh, young David, you were telling me that uh, Mayor Francis Suarez uh, met his fundraising goals for the, to make it to the debate stage. I, he may not have matched his signature goals just yet, as I understand it. Is that possibly the case? It's probably the case. It's probably <laughs> the case. But he met, you said he had a unique goal. I said, of, you know the reason that he got to the, the debate stage? No. It's because he offered donors gas cards. Oh, okay. And he wouldn't be the first person that's also offered donors gas cards for okay. $1. You get something like $20 back in gas cards. Oh, okay. That's how they get uh, a multitude of $1 donors to reach as many possible donors as they can because it's all about numbers and not about dollar amounts. But couldn't you theoretically then look at other candidates that finally that not finally. Couldn't you then theoretically look at other candidates that got infusions of $19 donations because what you do is you get the $20 gas card you put in a dollar's worth of gas and then you get the 19 bucks back and give it to someone else What? Couldn't you? <laughs> Why not?
0: I don't think I think you have to use it for gas, right?
1: You have to? Don't you? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It seems to me... That
2: sounds like some money laundering. <laughs> well, I don't...
1: I, the whole thing sounds suspicious to me. Oh,
2: it is. It is very much so. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It, that, that sounds like D- some... Big is
1: there no resentment, though, also against politicians who just have no shot and waste our time and other people's time and money and energy? You know, every minute covering him, I guess we're guilty of it, but to make a larger point, every minute covering him Look, here's the thing about politics. I think self-knowledge is hugely important and about anything in life, self-knowledge is hugely important. And the idea that a mayor in a city in Florida is going to go up against two other major Florida residents, namely a former president and the current governor, never mind former governors from other states, never mind – you know former governors and ambassadors never mind us senators from other states the idea that this is a campaign that has has any lift at all has any potential of success at all is that not something in and of itself that should be scorned and should be shamed and people should say what the hell are you thinking what do you have to offer and what are your chances why are you not a colossal waste of time That takes away energy, fundraising, and publicity from qualified candidates, other qualified candidates, other much more likely candidates than yourself. Isn't that lack of self-awareness somewhat in its own way inherently or – yeah, inherently disqualifying? Shouldn't it be?
2: We have no scorn and they have no shame.
1: Is that – who's the last mayor that ran for president with any –
0: Mayor Pete.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Mayor Pete. I mean but with any success. Um. John Lindsay, I guess, tried. No success. Didn't make it out of the primaries. I mean. I can't think of it. Mayor is not really a. It's not a thing. No, it's not. As Ross Perot said, you can't extrapolate from a unit that small. Yeah? Yeah. Old old Ross Perot quote. He wasn't wrong about everything, after all. No. Might have been ahead of the curve on the debt issue, actually. Oh, yeah. Oh,
0: yeah. And NAFTA.
1: Yeah, it's probably we re-, re-, re it's probably worth rewatching some of those things that yeah scorned at the time. Uh, yes, you can in Yucatan. I remember that was his phrase for an ad he saw something about wages here. Wouldn't you like to pay wages much lower? Yes, you can in Yucatan. <laughs> the elites that I was talking about in my monologue. Is there anything more? Sac, what's the word I want? Any more? than, and elitist than Hillary Rodham Clinton, writing in um, the current issue of The Atlantic, The Weaponization of Loneliness. She's writing, the weaponization of loneliness to defend America against those who would exploit our social disconnection, we need to rebuild our communities. She writes, the question that preoccupied me and many others over much of the past eight years is how our democracy became so susceptible to a would-be strongman and demagogue. The question that keeps me up at night now with increasingly urgency as 2024 approaches is whether we have done enough to rebuild our defenses or whether our democracy is still highly vulnerable to attack and subversion. What attack and subversion is she talking about? Does she still think Russia changed the election in 2016? Anyway, listen to her. Quote, the reason for concern, the influence of dark money and corporate power, right-wing propaganda and misinformation, malign foreign interference in our elections, and the vociferous backlash against social progress. The, she quotes, vast right-wing conspiracy, close quote, has been of compelling interest to me for many years. Why does she have to put in quotes her own phrase? Do you quote yourself? Is that Do you have to put quote? When, when, I, If I write out a monologue, do I have to put it in quotes? If it's my own words, my own phraseology? Do you get more elite than that? The vast right-wing conspiracy, quote-unquote, has been, and I'm quoting her, has been of compelling interest to me for many years. But I've long thought something important was missing from our national conversation about threats to democracy. Now, recent findings from a perhaps unexpected source, America's Top Doctor, offer a new perspective on our problems and valuable insights into how we can begin healing our ailing nation. She then goes on to talk about, uh, a few months ago, Surgeon General Vivek Murthy's uh, advisory on the epidemic of loneliness and isolation. Is it somewhat not a little precious that a woman who argued for shutdowns and lockdowns is now lamenting the crisis of loneliness in this country? And is it not just a little too precious? That she's still clinging to the notion that the Russians are responsible for her not being elected in 2016, just as we were taught that it was a criminal enterprise for Donald Trump to think that someone else was responsible for his loss in 2020? Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. John Dombrowski is the president and founder of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. Great website, grandcanyonplanning.com. Great man, great operation. And he joins us for our culture and economy update. How are you, John?
2: Fantastic, Seth. Well, why a lot are of you fun laughing? stuff going on. Well, out yeah, there. There.
1: there's a lot. I was just. <laughs> Culture and Economy, it, it, throw in the World Wrestling Federation or the, whatever it's called now, and you can get Elon W-F-C, Musk. Yeah, yeah, C, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, I don't know. Yeah, and we can...
2: WWF or what? I don't That's
1: know. what it was. Now, is it is it back to the WWF? I, I don't... I don't know. It was the WWF. Now it's the World... Whatever it is. It's Wolf. Elon Musk versus Mark Zuckerberg. They're threatening each other to engage in a cage match? Come on. Uh, and <laughs> is, apparently yes.
2: going to be... Uh, I guess uh, shown on uh, formerly known as Twitter X now.
1: Yeah, and maybe Threads as well. They're going to have to. I mean, you can't have Elon Musk give it all over to Twitter, can you? Or X?
2: I would. I wouldn't think. I mean, he's got to have
1: half a share in this. No.
2: I wonder, and this is just wondering, really, is that are both of them like secretly, like really friends, and they're just trying to figure out a way to
1: like the real WWF? uh... (laughs) 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 Is it? Is this all staged? Yeah, is this all right? Are they going to be coming out of the same locker room? All right. Now, again, you know, I
2: was reading, I was reading the book, uh, Tyrus uh, wrote wrote, wrote a book. Yeah. uh, Talks about his, his, uh, you know, times in the, um, in his wrestling career and how he would hate when people would say that, oh, that's all fake. He goes, you know, maybe it's staged and all, but you know, you're a professional and you've got to do things there's a certain a way. And people could get hurt. Yeah. Oh yeah, there's no question. There's about There's a it. lot of
1: acrobatics um, in there.
2: Yeah, I mean, what's going on here with this? I mean, is, yeah. is this really serious? I mean, <laughs> I don't and know. now I guess Musk says he's got to have surgery, and yeah, uh, so gonna have to put this off. For yeah,
1: not maybe a while, the strongest but. thing to say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can't no, do it because my neck hurts. Let me my ask you. Hurts. Let me ask you about yeah. this. We've covered this before. Let me move more strictly yeah. into the Go econ era. Um, This is interesting because we have covered it. A real estate haven turns perilous with roughly $1 Mm. trillion coming true. Apartment buildings long considered a real estate haven are emerging as the next major trouble spot in the beleaguered commercial property world. Can you remind us what this is about, John?
2: Yeah. You know, um, for anyone who's been a real estate investor uh, for many, many years, you know, owning properties, obviously, that generate income are are important, right? Because if you're just going to buy property that doesn't generate income, you just – it's just costing you money to hold that property with the hopes that it's going to, you know, increase in value. Right. But if you're going to be purchasing property, that's going to be rental property that's generating an income. It's, it's bringing in more income than what the expenses are. That's the goal, right? To be positive cash flow. Um, those types of properties over the years have j- just increased dramatically.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And, um, and that, of course, is because rent has gone up as well. So the, as income goes up, these properties are valued based on their income. Mm-hmm. So the more income you have, the higher the value. And these values got quite high. And now the concern is is the cost to carry some of the debt with the interest rates rising on these properties going up is now creating a, a little bit of a concern for... Uh, rental income because that income is now going to be less than what was expected. And if that's the case, then that value is going down. So the thought is is that, hey, there's potentially a trillion dollars of properties out there, rental properties, apartments and such that may have a challenge as – it is being refinanced, and people are selling these units. So there's a real concern about it, and that's ultimately what this is talking about.
1: I don't know if this is a word, but what about the lucrativity, or you know what I mean, the, the, the lucrativity of apartment owning now, rental owning now? Because for the last couple of years, we were talking about how high the prices were to rent, mm-hmm. how much it cost yeah. to rent. Is this going to be a double whammy? For those who Um, own apartments,
2: you know, if you if you have an apartment complex or even an individual home, if you're just a you know you own a second home and you rent it, um, if you've got a lower interest rate on that mortgage, then you're going to be okay. Okay, you know, we're talking about people who have you know these. Large buildings and their loans may have uh, had a shorter term to them, and now they've got to come up with money either to pay off that loan or refinance. Mm -hmm. And refinancing from four or five percent, maybe now to seven, eight, nine, or ten percent, is a drastic difference when you're trying to pay you know pay that expense. And will you be able to raise rents? To accommodate that, and the answer is probably no, because yeah. we're starting to see rents coming down. Yeah. If
1: anything, and who can afford? So it this is
2: where rent. the concern can be. And yeah. if if that happens, you're going to see these apartment complexes going on the the chopping block, and you'll have uh, you know a lot of foreclosures. And again, it's like any market, though, Seth. Um, in, in difficult times, there will be people out there that will pick up these properties at a lower yeah, value, sure. and over time, they'll do very well. Yeah. You know, good so. warning. Timing Thanks, is Jeff. everything in real estate. Thank you, sir. You bet. Securities and advisory services offered through Creative One Securities LLC, a member of FINRA/SIPC, and SIPIC, an investment advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Creative One Securities LLC, and not affiliated. Go to our website,
1: GrandCanyonPlanning.com. Thanks. Nailed guys. it. Thanks, Ross. Yep. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. Just if I could stay on the economy for a few more moments, they're uh, still talking about Bidenomics. And I wanted to share with you a really good um, editorial from our friends at Issues and Insights where Joe Biden's routine now is to say that trickle-down economics has never worked. Um, That is what Joe Biden says anytime he's talking about economic policy. Um, But the truth is it's Bidenomics that has failed everywhere. It's been tried at home, abroad, throughout history, and right now in states across the United States. There are a multitude of stories that have been published recently detailing how Biden's approach to economic policy, whether it's high taxes, heavy regulation, attacks on the rich and businesses, coddling criminals and Biden style graft and corruption is ruining cities and states across the countries. For years, we have been documenting how red states, that is to say conservative states that followed the pro-growth policies Biden derides as trickle down, have vastly outperformed blue states. They suffered less during COVID because they didn't embrace the left's lockdown mania. They recovered faster because they rejected Biden's get paid for not working policies. Past week has supplied ample fresh evidence of the failure of key Bidenomics principles and stories uh, that are all over the place. For example, the Oregonian reported that Multnomah County, which is home to Portland, lost one billion dollars of income in 2020. 20- 20 and 2021 as residents fled the leftist paradise in the wake of riots and covid lockdowns and soak the rich policies taking with them a substantial amount of tax revenue the Oregonian noted that the resulting loss of tax revenues could lead to spending cuts as loss of income could result in cuts in government spending due to budget shortfalls as the state is heavily reliant on the high earners as a source of revenue due to Oregon's personal income tax meanwhile the Daily Mail reported on a study that found that California and New York lost more than $640 million in combined income over those same two years as wealthy people fled Bidenomics enclaves while trickle-down states, so to speak, like Texas and Florida, saw a combined gain of $23 billion in taxable income. Um, The wealth migration to these states has profound economic implications, in part, because relocating high-income individuals often leads to expanding existing businesses or establishing new ones. This was borne out just last week, where an affiliate in Baltimore, Fox affiliate in Baltimore, WBFF, which reported how that city's property values have plummeted as people fled the bitter fields of Bidenomics. A 30-story building sold last month for $24 million, WBFF noted which was a third of what that same building fetched eight years ago. Another building, which is home to T. Row Price, saw its assessed value cut almost in half. Biden's middle class is also doing worse in Bidenomics states. The Boston Herald noted last week how wages grew by just 2.6 percent in New York and 2.9 percent in California, which have gone full Bidenomics, but were 9.1 percent in Florida and 7.7 percent in Texas. What's more, Florida and Texas both outperformed California and New York in manufacturing, finance, information, retail, and professional services. Of course, if you want evidence of the failure of Bidenomics, you only have to look at what it's produced since Biden came into office. Failing wages, sky-high inflation, financial stress, and polling that most Americans agree that Bidenomics is not working. And if you want success, real evidence of success, of so-called trickle down economics look at the reagan boom or the pre covid trump boom or look internationally where you find a direct relationship between low taxes and less regulation and other indicators of economic freedom which all get lumped into this trickle down epithet biden apparently hopes that bidenomics will be his salvation come next november but it's not the salvation of the people that have to live with it and live through it now I I raise that not just for the economic political point, but for an additional political point. We were talking and joking around a little bit with John Dombrowski about about the Elon Musk, uh, Mark Zuckerberg theoretical or possible or potential cage match. But the real interesting debate, if it takes place, is the one that seems to be coming together possibly in September or October between – Ron DeSantis and Gavin Newsom it's it's an open question that I keep wrestling with on my regular calls with political analysts around the country as to a whether Joe Biden plans to actually run again next year, and if he doesn't, who the Democrat water carrier will be, and the betting markets and all the rest don't have any stock in Kamala Harris. But what's interesting to me is that you do have a very prominent Democrat who's announced, Robert Kennedy, and no one speaks of him doing it in the way that, let's say, during LBJ's last years before the 1968 election, it was the speculation that it might be a Eugene McCarthy or a Robert Kennedy people who were challenging him, taking a bite out of his political hide, convincing him he was unsalable for re-election in 1968. Robert Kennedy Jr. doesn't have that going for him here. And he's not really moving numbers. He's not really growing in the numbers. So it really does look like Gavin Newsom who has formed several new political action committees or have had, has had several political action committees formed on his behalf. And people on these calls will say, well, I I just don't know how, how you can match Florida indicators or indices with California's indicators and indices. I mean, one is a total basket case and one is a growth case. One is really represented by the suitcases, I guess one might say. People are packing from California to move to Florida. And I just, I got to tell you, I don't think it matters. I mean, I think it matters a little bit, but... You know, I think we are in such an environment where facts like those are great for the partisans who are dug in and great for Republicans. But I, I, I just think we're living in a world of so much imagery that it's about the way the candidate sounds and makes you feel more than it is about the actual indicators of California, be it on the economy or be it on crime or. You name it, homelessness, drug use. You name it, education. It, it, it just people don't seem to care. And my only thought on that is they've now had two times, two chances to rid themselves of Gavin Newsom's leadership and voted not to recall him and voted to elect him again. And yet they live with these problems, Californians do. So in part, yes, there's a nostalgia de la bouille, of course. There's some of that going on. But I think it's the image that sells. And, you know, you can paint the Republican into a certain image. And you paint Gavin Newsom with a certain image. And I got to tell you, his, his, his political salability, his political prowess is very, very high. He's the one I'm worried about. He's the one I'm worried about wonder what you think. Six zero two We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson show. You think about the economy as we've been talking, the stock market volatility, speculation of a recession, the bank failures, obviously the inflation. And you ask where to invest, where to invest. Well, why refi has an answer. They have an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return, and it's not correlated to the stock market or the Fed. It's a portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like, with no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. There are no fees in this secure collateralized portfolio from Y Refi, and they're based here locally. They're headquartered right on Scottsdale Road in the 101. I encourage you to stop by their offices. I've been and I can tell you, you won't get a sales pitch and no one's going to ask you to sign a thing. But when you do meet with the team there, you'll see why I like and trust them so much. And you can too. Why refi is a due diligence approved firm where you can earn up to a ten and a quarter percent rate of return. That's right, a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or call them at 888 888- y refi 34 That's 888-Y-REFI-34. Rick is in Phoenix. Hello, Rick.
0: Hello there, my eidetic friend. How are you? Well, I am doing well, thank you. Eidetic?
1: It, you think my memory is that good?
0: Well, I think so. Okay. I, is it not? Do you not have uh, I have hyper. Memory? I think I have
1: something more like hyperthymesia than an eidetic memory. Okay. I think, okay. I think.
0: Okay. Well, I have photographic Maybe memories. Maybe we shouldn't
1: use those terms. Oh, do you? Do you have I, it?
0: Oh, no, I can't get the film to develop. Oh, I, I like know.
1: that. Okay. all right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> hey, Seth, it is always a pleasure to talk to you, Thanks. and uh, I enjoyed your monologue today and the show so far. And uh, it, it triggered some thinking on my part here. The uh, You were talking about Gavin Newsom yes, and how sir. they keep electing him, and yes. uh, in spite of all the calamity and everything going on and i heard a news report earlier that president biden has like a 42 percent approval yeah rating.
1: lowest of any president since jimmy carter at this stage in the presidency well
0: yeah most. but still 42 percent yeah who are they and, and, and <laughs> i what, know i know yeah, well, what i'm thinking is yeah. remember that old uh i don't know this goes back quite a ways uh, i think it was something called stockholm Syndrome. yes sir yes sir I think that's what's going on. Well, the, the, the people of California and 42% of the American population have been so flagellated that they just don't get. they just keep voting them in.
1: Possibly. Um I I obviously 42% is awful for the fact that, you know, over, you know, over sixty percent don't think you have a great presidency, but yeah. you know I think there's such hatred. This is why I think Newsom is very good. Is he's very, he, you know, you put him up against Republicans, and uh, you know he's got a very easygoing manner, and he's got a very good debating style. Did you catch True. his interview with, uh, with with Sean Hannity?
0: I did. I did. It, 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 you got
1: to you got to hand it to him, don't you? I cringed. Yeah, but you got it yeah. but it was a damn good interview, wasn't it? Uh, well,
0: yeah, it was. I got ga- yeah. I got to
1: take the break. Stay with me. Oh, we'll come okay. back to you. Okay.